Let's begin with a pop quiz. You didn't know. You didn't know that in coming to uh, to give an answer event, you have to answer questions for a pop quiz, but you are. So, just one question. He already knows the answer. It's not. Not directly. Uh, so this is like one of those really difficult questions that only the most brilliant here will be able to answer. What's a worldview? Raise your hand if you know. Yes, ma'am. Um, so beliefs and assumptions through which you, like it's the lenses through which you see the world. Absolutely. It's like the intellectual lenses by which you see and interpret the world. Um, if you leave here not knowing anything else, then you'd better know a lot more. Uh, that would be exceedingly valuable. So I'm going to talk today about the Christian foundations of science and the impact of Darwin. Yeah, that also is not me. That's, uh, that's Darwin. Um, so ideas have consequences. You might have heard that before. Uh, and bad ideas have bad consequences. Uh, one of the most consequentially bad ideas since the uh, mid to late 19th century has been Darwinism. Uh, but I'm actually going to address Darwinism toward the end and start with something positive. I'm going to make three main points. First, Christians were at the forefront of modern science. Christians were at the forefront of modern science. Two, I'm going to talk about why they had to be at the forefront of modern science. I'm basically going to make the point that modern science was impossible apart from Christian presuppositions or a Christian worldview. Then I'm going to conclude with the chief attack on those Christian presuppositions in the modern world, which is, how in the world, I just like accidentally move the slide. All right, well, we're not going back to the initial slide. We're apparently going to this slide. Um, <clears throat> So, oh, there, a miracle happened. The, uh, <clears throat> so, um, the biggest argument against Christianity today among intelligent or would-be intelligent unbelievers is this. Why can't you be a Christian, we ask, and they will say something like what? Well, it conflicts with science. That's often what they will say. There's only one way to respond to that assertion, and that is, and you don't have to say this to them, though you might, uh, it's just mistaken. That's ignorant. Um, there would not have been modern science without Christians. Now, the first thing I want to point out is, all right, we're going to try this again. We're going to try it again. Looks like you might have to help me. Um, the ancients could not have the ancients could not have developed oh, thank you, sorry about that whatever I did wrong the ancients could not have um, developed um, uh, science what we call science now, uh, I'm just going to mention quickly uh, pagan Greece and Rome I could talk about other ancient uh, civilizations but this is the one uh, from which and in which Christianity emerged, so I'll mention that one. Uh, they didn't embrace what we would call empirical science. What does that word empirical mean? 
Anybody know? Yes. 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 I'm sorry. Yes, exactly. Sort of testable, uh, testable or learned through sense experience. Uh, they had nothing like that. These, the ancient uh, Greco-Roman thinkers were deductive thinkers. So they would make intellectual assumptions about the universe. Uh, they wouldn't actually test those assumptions. They would make these logical sort of worldviewish assumptions about the universe. Um, and that's one reason that all of them, or virtually all of them, were geocentrists. What is geocentricity? Anybody know what geocentricity is as a cosmology? It is the very popular idea, not today, thank God, but once the prominent idea that the Earth is the center of the universe, so that um, all of the, the sun and the planets and everything else revolves around the Earth. Now, you guys know that's false, right? But a lot of really, really smart people believed that. And the reason they believed that is because they never really tested that theory. They just deductively assumed that it was true. Um, only later in... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> only later... All right, here's our testable theory, our empirical test here. Oh, yes. Um, there's Francis Bacon. Oh, the thought of bacon. We had some for breakfast, didn't we? Um, he... Uh, in, on Christian presuppositions, embrace the inductive method, that is, truth arises from material or empirical testing. I'm going to point out in a few minutes why that is a Christian presupposition. Um, he understood that God is orderly, and therefore the world is governed by discoverable laws. Again, that's a Christian idea. Because it's governed by um, discoverable laws then creation is orderly, and therefore it can be tested, you see? So, uh, having said that, that's just a, like a brief foundation. I'm going to mention for the next few minutes some of the early Christian scientists, not like Christian science, the religion you've heard about, not that. I mean, Christian scientists, um, without whom, uh, humanly speaking, we would not have had modern science and had many of these blessings and benefits. Ah, there we go. Um, Let's take, and I don't have photos for all of these, but just kind of sort of um, cycle through some of these. You've heard of Copernicus? Let's talk about astronomy first. You've heard of Copernicus, maybe? Right? What you might not have, he he discovered, by the way, heliocentricity, which is what? Raise your hand if you know. Tell me what heliocentricity is. Okay, it's like the opposite of geocentricity. So, like, what would that be? What's that? Yeah, that's right. The Earth is not the center. Basically, our solar system, it's called a solar, solar means sun, solar system for a reason. Everything revolves around the sun. Well, he discovered heliocentricity, and the reason is because he actually investigated. Okay, he investigated this with telescopes and so on. What people often forget is he was a, a Christian, a canon in the East Prussian Church, and his biggest promoters were Lutherans. Uh, the Reformers, not the Roman Catholic Church, by the way, but Reformers. And then there's Galileo. You say, aha, how many have heard of Galileo? What's the real controversy in Galileo's life? He too studied the heavenly bodies. He was forced to recant his views, his correct views, by what? Do you remember? The Roman Catholic Church basically essentially threw him in jail and you know, kind of said things like, we're going to like kill you unless you come out and say that you're wrong about this idea that the sun is the 
center of, um, of the universe, of our universe that we understand. And sadly, he, uh, he recounted, remember it said that under his breath when he, uh, not recounted, recanted. You remember what he said? It was said under his breath as he was, re- as he was recanting real quietly. But the earth does move. Um, so you think, oh, well, Christians opposed him. So this shows that Christianity is opposed to science. What people often don't know is that though the Roman Catholic Church opposed him, the reformers, reformed people, and Lutheran people did not oppose him, but they supported him. The Roman Catholic Church was committed to the older scholastic um, ideas of science. Uh, And then there's um, Johann Kepler. Anybody hear of uh, Kepler before? He, uh, again, we're talking about astronomy. He discovered the three laws of planetary motion which are that the planets revolve around the sun elliptically. You know that, right? Well, before that, people thought that, think, they're thinking geometrically, that it, when the planets do revolve, it's like they're beautiful, beautiful little circles. But you know, of course, that's not true, right? The planets revolve around the sun in elliptical orbits. They don't orbit at uniform speeds, and their speeds, their orbiting speeds are related to their distance from the sun. In fact... What's the planet that goes around the sun very fast? This planet, like, is a lickety-split planet. Which one is it? Come on. Yeah, Mercury. That's why it's called Mercury. It's really fast. Um, So, Kepler discovered these laws and other things. Well, what you might not know is he prepared for the Lutheran ministry. He was a Christian. Okay? So then let's talk about, uh, not just astronomy, but physics. Isaac Newton, who was either a Christian or certainly influenced by Christianity... He um, discovered laws of gravity that revolutionized science. He knew that God was a God of order. Uh, and then how many of you have heard of Blaise Pascal? Have you heard of Pascal before? He invented the adding machine, the hypodermic syringe, the hydraulic press, was a devout Christian, wrote a remarkable book about apologetics. Uh, three more I'll just mention before we get to genetics and move on. Um, Alessandro Volta and Jules Simon Ohm and Andre Ampere. Any of that sounding familiar? Have you ever heard of volts, ohms, and amps? And electricity and electrical current, all three godly Christian men. And then finally, and there's so many more, I, because of the length of the time I have, I'd cut out a whole lot, but then the gentleman here noticed Gregor Mendel. Very important man in the history of science, an Augustinian monk. Uh, he's the father of modern genetics. Okay. Um, by the way, eight, uh, 19th century, um, he also investigated Darwinism and um, rejected Darwinism, father of modern genetics. So having said that, let me just move on to a, an outstanding quote by Alvin J. Schmidt, who has written extensively on these topics and the Christian influence uh, on Western civilization. Uh, would one of you like to read this quote for me? Save my voice a little bit. Some of you, one of you. Oh, you're just so shy. Yes, man. God bless you. <laughs> Virtually all scientists from the Middle Ages to the Middle 18th century, many of whom were sem- seminal. Seminal, sorry, seminal. That's all right. Not only were sincere Christians, but were often inspired by biblical postulates and premises. Thank you. Now, this last part, in a sense, might be the most important. It wasn't just, you notice what he's saying? 
It wasn't just that these were scientists who happened to be Christians. That's not what he's saying. What is he saying? It was their Christianity which, fill in the blank, yes, that helped them to arrive at these discoveries, you see? And that leads us to our next point, which is biblical presuppositions, Christian presuppositions of uh, modern science. Now, the first thing I want to do is to define science. Does anybody know what the word science means? I don't mean defining modern science, just etymologically, essentially, identitatively, I should say. What does the word mean? Science just means knowledge. Science is knowledge. But when we use the term uh, science today, when we use the term science, we generally don't mean that. We mean a very specialized kind of knowledge, which results from the application of the scientific method. Does anybody here know what the scientific method is? Without looking at the slide. Yes. <laughs> exactly. So let's kind of review these things. Um, science is actually uh, modern science. That's what I mean. Is limited to a very narrow field. Science doesn't have explanatory power over everything. It has explanatory power over a lot, but it's limited. Therefore, it doesn't deal with metaphysics. Does science deal with God and the Holy Spirit and demons and ultimate reality? No. It deals with testable physical reality, or what's the E word? We just, it was just defined earlier. Empirical. empirical. It deals with empirical reality. Sense-based testable reality. All right, so here basically... in is the scientific method. Uh, there is a hypothesis that some scientist, some individual, he's looking at creation, he's dealing with it, and he, he says, you know what, I believe that this is this, or this does this. And so he posits, or sets forth a particular hypothesis, he or she, a hypothesis. Well, it's not, a, it's, it's not enough to just think about it like the ancient Greeks would. If it's real, it has to be testable. And so... Here are the test tubes. I mean, do you have to do all testing with test tubes? No, you can do it astronomically. You certainly can't. I mean, you can't put um, Mars in a test tube. But that's one way, in chemistry, let's say, of testing. So he tests this hypothesis. And if he finds that he runs a lot of tests, he or she, the test is true at that testing, then does he say, does he publish? Here's the key. Does he or she publish his or her results immediately? No. They'll like send it to other people. Or if they publish them, if he does, it's very tentative. He wants to see if the scientists in uh, Toronto, if he's in the States, or in Paris, or in Beijing, can get the same results. And so they all kind of work together, getting the same results. And maybe they find out, well, it's mostly correct. But you know, there are a couple of anomalies. What do I mean by anomalies? What's that? Yeah, good. Like something irregular, something that doesn't quite fit. And they say, okay, we have to account for that. Then they'll go back and kind of restate the hypothesis, test it again. And if, after all of that, the testing comes out, then it is considered um, a, a scientific result. Oh, by the way, you'll hear this term a lot today. Is it therefore considered uh, settled science? If you ever hear that expression, you know that somebody is fudging with you. 
Why can there never be such a thing as settled science? There's always more to learn than Yes, exactly. Now, the Bible is settled. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Revelation is settled. Science is never settled. One of the most important theories of all time, scientific law of gravity. So, here's Newton, and he says that. And yet, this upstart, 20, what was he, 28, 29, early 30s? German physicist comes along in about 1905 and then 1917 and overturns this guy's view of gravity. What was his name? Mm -hmm. Einstein, exactly. He didn't really disprove everything or most things, but when it came to long distances, Einstein disproved some of what was said earlier. So obviously there is no settled science. Everybody understand that? Okay. So that's what science is. Now, uh, it's important, by the way, to test. This has important practical results. Um, let's take in the case of medicine. Did you know that back in the 18th century, a prominent idea, uh, a diagnosis, or I should say a, a prognosis and dealing with medical problems uh, involved, if somebody was sick, uh, a method called, sounds so barbaric to us, bleeding. Did you know that, right? Our, in the United States, our first president, great man, Christian man, he essentially died that way. He got sick. And so what was the prominent medical uh, scientific theory at the time? Is if you're sick, the best is to get all of that bad blood out of you. Is, so you're thinking, is that like today? Would that be like a smart thing to do? Like you get the flu, you go to the hospital, and we'll just take three pints of blood out of you, and maybe the flu will fall out. Well, okay, so we're laughing, but why are we laughing? Why do we know that that's a laughable idea? When uh, 250, 300 years ago they didn't. Why do we know it's laughable? We tested it. We found out we do that and people die. They don't get better, they die. All right, that's why it's, that's called science. It's medical science, you see. Having said that now, let's move on to, Susie, can you remind me, this ends at what time? Uh, 11.45. Oh, man, I got to move. Okay. Why were you detaining me? You were getting me off track. I'm going to blame you. Um, so, uh, what are the Christian presuppositions behind modern science? Uh, let's, um, so first, I think Dr. Boot mentioned this last time in the last talk, didn't he? The creator-creature distinction. Uh, this is another reason that uh, pantheistic societies never produce science. How many of you here have ever heard of animism? What is animism? Raise your hand. Tell me quickly. Animism is the idea that the deities or the spirit world infuse the physical world. Now, can you see how that, that could really tend to discourage what we know as modern science? I mean, why would it discourage it? If, like, God was living inside the tree, would you want to test the tree? No, if you get a chainsaw, you could be like, chainsaw and God, baby. I would never want to do that. Well... Animus kind of understood that logic at the time, and that's why modern science never began in animistic cultures, in pantheistic cultures. This is true of others, for example. Everybody following me there? See what I'm saying? Okay. Um, Vern Poitras, noted uh, Christian and uh, philosopher of science, said the doctrine of creation desacralizes the creature. Who can tell me what that means? It's kind of sophisticated language, but it's not hard to understand desacralizes the creature. Like, takes away God from it, kind of, because if it's like, 
Yes, good point. God created everything, but does that mean that God actually resides within everything? No. If there is this distinction, then we can test on plants and animals and test within the universe and so on. And that gave a foundation for the testing capacity of, uh, of modern science. And then, uh, we better move on quickly, the orderliness and stability of creation. The Bible teaches, I won't read this text, but that all things, by him, all things consist. The Greek word there for consist, it kind of literally means all things hold together. Metaphorical picture here is that right now, Jesus Christ is holding the physical universe together. You remember the old spiritual that goes, he's got the whole world in his hands. Okay, not an invitation for everybody to start singing, but you know what I'm talking about. That really is true. That really is true. Now, understand what I'm saying here. Everybody take a deep breath. Ready? The fact that we can be breathing right now, now listen carefully. It's not just some natural law. If Jesus Christ removed his sustaining hand, we would all be going, in about three minutes we'd be dead. That's how tactile this is. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. Visible or invisible, everything. He holds together everything. Now, because of that, there is predictable stability and regularity in the universe. How many of you last night had difficulty getting to sleep because you were worried that the sun would not rise today? Come on. Now, don't be shy. Those of you here admit that. So I have a question. Why didn't you worry about that? Yes, it's predictable. This has been going on for thousands of years. And nobody ever got up and said, oh, the sun is gone. The sun didn't rise. It like never happened. You know why it never happened? Because of the rhythms of God's grace and Jesus Christ holding everything together. That's a Christian presupposition. Now, the question I have for you and for scientists who deny God is this. Why should that be? See, well, I mean, even if there isn't a God, it's just like, it's predictable. But why would that be? Say, well, I've never really thought about it. Right. If you think about it, the fact that there is predictable stability and regularity in the universe, the fact that there is that, proves that behind the universe, there is at least a being who created it and is holding things together. And according to the Bible, we know that that's Jesus Christ. And then let's move on to the other Christian presupposition behind modern science is the goodness of the material world. At the end of every creation day, God looked at something and he said, ah, this is good. And then he gets to the very end, creates everything. God looks at it and he says, it is very good. Creation is very good. The Bible says God gives us all things richly to enjoy in the first Timothy six seventeen. Um, science is designed to help man harness this created world for God's glory and man's benefit. Why? Because this material world is good. It's not bad. It's good. Now, it has been cursed because of our sin, but it's not inherently bad. There's nothing bad about trees. And uh, Lake, this is Ontario out here, right? Lake Ontario. 
Uh, there's nothing bad about birds, nothing bad even about snakes, per se. I'm not looking at them, but all of this is inherently good and should be harnessed and should be harnessed for God's glory and man's enjoyment. Because the material world is good, science is permitted, and I'm going to show in a minute, I believe, demanded to harness this world for the glory of God. That leads then to... Oh, by the way, this is also why you can enjoy the world and you don't have to escape. Science is the antithesis of the desire for escape from the world. You ever meet Christians that are always like wanting to escape from the world? Oh, the world is so evil. Well, that's using the world in a separate sense. John says, love not the world, do not love the world. He means world in that sense is the system under satanic control, right? But he doesn't mean the created world. Don't love the created world. The created world is very good. The trees are very good. This property is very good. Nothing wrong with going around and enjoying it. In fact, there's everything wrong with not enjoying it because it's God's creation. Okay, I'm stopping. Who's still following me? Nobody's falling asleep? Don't need to send Rick out for coffee? Okay. Let's then go to the last, uh, yeah, the last main point on this, the scientist dominion calling. Again, for, to save time, um, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, uh, man, uh, God makes man in his image and gives him the calling of stewarding the earth. Now, this is something you might want to write down. This, this commission of stewarding the earth is called the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate, it was given to man. I don't mean just males, man and woman. This is our calling to steward the earth. Specifically, one aspect, the first aspect of Adam's calling. God said, you see all these beautiful creatures out there? Your job is to name them. Now, that involved what we would call science. Because, I mean, Adam wasn't dumb, smarter than us in some ways, though not in others. I mean, he saw that a dog, what we call a dog, is more like a horse than it is a worm. So I'm sure he gave names that were appropriate to these sorts of classifications. So there's a basic science inherent in this. And I would say that all science is inherent in this. To exercise the cultural mandate to have dominion over the creation, guess what you have to do? You have to create a hypothesis as you look around. You have to test it. You have to have other people test it. Wow. And then you come to conclusions. So what I'm saying is that this is the scientist's dominion calling. This calling right here necessitates what we call modern science. And of course, after Adam, you had Cain and Abel. If you've read the scriptures, have you read about that line? They produced architecture, um, dealt with livestock, metallurgy, husbandry, even musical instruments. You read about all that? That's early, we might say, early ancient science of the best kind, of the best kind, and it started with creational, biblical creational presuppositions. These biblical presuppositions that I mentioned, I've only mentioned, what were there, four of them, three or four of them, make science possible. No cultural mandate without science. And basically, if we do things God's way, we prosper. If we don't do things God's way, we do not prosper. Now, I want to conclude the uh, next 10 minutes with... Um, the essential uh, worldviewish ideological attack in our world 
on these Christian presuppositions, and that is Darwinism. I thought that picture was really cool. <laughs> so that's why I put it in there, sort of to wake you up. Um, so let's talk about Darwinism. I'm not talking so much about its empirical, uh, empirical character that could be refuted, as I am showing how Darwinism completely undercuts man and humanity, dehumanizes man. Uh, the first thing to understand is that Darwinism is not equal to, equivalent to evolution. For example, Darwin's grandfather was actually an evolutionist. Evolutionist, A lot of people at the time were. In fact, a number of the ancients were evolutionists. What is new in Darwinism, and this is vital, is it is the first worldview to have provided a distinctly secular framework for science. You might want to write that down. First worldview to have provided a distinctly secular framework for science. Here's kind of how that went. By the 19th century, most of the elites in places like uh, uh, Germany, uh, Northern Europe, uh, and uh, the United States and so on, had essentially, uh, not, perhaps not so much the U.S. and Canada, but certainly in places like England, had given up Christianity, and they were becoming good secularists. Uh, that was their worldview. And what they needed was um, a, a, an empirical explanation for the worldview that they had already accepted. You understand that? And so that's why some of them said, when Darwinism came along, how happy and relieved they were. So Darwin didn't just go out on the beagle. What was the beagle? It wasn't his dog. What was it? The ship that he traveled around a couple of years on, getting all of his information. He didn't just go around objectively saying, oh, I'm open to any explanation of the world. Whatever I find, that wasn't Darwin's view at all. He had already, as a youth, given up on the Bible. And he was looking for a particular empirical explanation for his already secular worldview. Everybody following me there? So he already had this commitment. And he says, now I want to create a scientific theory, a theory about the physical universe that fits in with this intellectual commitment. Everybody's got that, right? Okay. So, um, great quote here from... One of the great uh, Christian uh, now passed away. I don't know if you've read any books or heard about uh, one of the world's great scholars, Christians, uh, on the issue of science, philosophy of science, Stanley Yockey. Uh, there's a book title you want to write down that's really great. It's called The Savior of Science. He wrote, pointing out that Christianity, uh, what I'm pointing out to you, Christianity arose I'm sorry, science, modern science arose within Christianity and could not have arisen anywhere else. He says, there was hardly a leading Darwinist, he means in the 19th century, who did not speak of Darwinism as a comprehensive view of life and existence. We would call that what? What do we call a comprehensive view of life and existence? Worldview. So let's just put that in there. Who did not speak of Darwinism as a worldview. In doing so, Sir Arthur Keith, prominent guy at the time, explicitly classed Darwinism as a religion. You see, it's a particular way of interpreting the world. It's not, quote, settled science. Right? So, um, you know what, let's, uh, I'm going to assume, does everybody here know what natural selection is? Survival, okay. I'm going to, if not, there it is real quick. Read it fast. Okay, very good. 
All right, now, here's the problem. Darwinism. Um, I just thought that picture was really good, too. It deprivileges, deprivileges humanity. There's no room for a uniqueness for man. Man is simply one of the higher animals. Uh, there's no telos or teleology in Darwinism. Does anybody know what telos is? Design or purpose? If you understand survival of the fittest, you understand what I'm talking about. It's essentially that nature or the environment itself selects. That's a bad word, though. That implies a choice. Nature doesn't, according to their view, doesn't make choices. But using that language, nature selects certain species to survive. Well, there's no telos in that. There's no intent in that. So there's no real reason for you to be here. There's no uniqueness to man. And therefore, man is deprivileged. In the Bible, man is created imago Dei. What does imago Dei mean? In the image of God. And he is the deputy. He's God's deputy. And he's given dignity because of that. And as Herman Duyveerd says, the great uh, Dutch um, philosopher of law, there is no world without man. The world was created for man. But in Darwinism, man is incidental to the world. One species among many uh, could go distinct, probably will go distinct, I meant extinct, of course, or evolve into something else, and this is where transhumanism comes along, next step of evolution, transcending humanity, more movies about that. A lot of these movies, to their credit, tend to be very dystopian. What does dystopian mean? It's the opposite of utopian. It's very dark, that the world is taken over by the machines, right? Uh, anybody ever see the, the Matrix, the uh, trilogy, The Matrix? Okay, it's, you may like them, you may not, but that's kind of this vision. And humanity then is, is left behind. This is what happens. Uh, and then, of course, uh, man is uh, reduced to an animal. And when man is reduced to an animal, there's no absolute ethics. And if that's the case, that's where racism comes from. Uh, it's called social Darwinism. And uh, eugenics. What is eugenics? Anybody know? Mm-hmm. No, no, no. That's okay. It's it's it's, it's um, euphemistic. Keeping the gene pool clean. Like getting rid of uh, people with autism. Yeah, autism or uh, people who have a prominent one is people who suffer from are born with Down syndrome. Exterminating the inferiors because, of course, we wouldn't want them transmitting their genes to the rest of the population. So we're looking for a superior race. Anybody historic? I mean, it's not like this idea would like have a negative impact in the real world, would it? Who actually adopted this notion? Between uh, 1933 and 1945, who did? Adolf Hitler. So here's the half Hitler. On distinctly Darwinian premises, by the way. So don't say that, well, this is one of those ideas that sort of floats around, but it's not really dangerous. No, ideas have, and here is an amazingly deleterious, destructive consequence of a very bad idea that millions of people died from. You see? On Darwinian uh, premises. Okay, great timing. So, I mean, snakes annoy me, and of course that's symbolic of the devil, 
and Christ, the mighty lion, crushing Satan. Darwinism attacks God's world. It never leads to scientific progress, only anti-scientific degradation, because it reduces man, God's highest creation created in his image, dehumanizes, and I've not even gotten into the empirical notions, how it cannot be possible as we study genetics and so on, how it's, it's possible, uh, de- human DNA and uh, sub-molecular materials and so on, the design there. I didn't even take time for that. Merely with what I said, Darwinism is false. It has become a self-destructive theory. Uh, it has uh, failed, and wherever it goes, it will always fail. But remember what I said last night about... Um, Cultural Marxism. Darwinism is self-refuting. It dehumanizes man, and therefore it ends up destroying itself. Going back to the snake metaphor, it's like the old idea of the snake who ends up eating its own tail. And so it began, Darwinism began by trying to liberate man from God and the Word of God and creational norms. It began by the attempt to liberate or free man, but it ends up in doing what? Dehumanizing, degrading man. You see how that works? Very good. Okay, we'll stop there. Well, that sounds good. Uh, what is it? Uh, ending at the right time?